شكاد داعش موجودين؟ اي 60 70 60 70 الكل تراقب النوافذ مالتها It's got to be maybe 60 70 meters away. There's an ISIS held building and they're firing at us. Vice News traveled to Iraq with the Golden Division, Iraq's special forces, as they launched an offensive against the Islamic State in the western province of Anbar. For two years, the Islamic State has controlled most of Anbar, but now, one by one, the towns and cities are being taken back. The target of the Golden Division is the strategic city of Heat, gateway to the IS stronghold of Fallujah. But to get there, they'll have to clear the IS-held villages surrounding it. The battle for Heat is merely another operation for Iraq's special forces. Many men have been fighting for over a decade and have lost comrades and friends. Before the assault on heat, we met Mohammed, a member of a sniper team Vice News embedded with in Ramadi last year. Not long after we last saw Mohammed, his best friend, Asa, was killed in the battle for Ramadi. Asa was considered the best sniper in the country. GlobalRecon.net, giving you the matter of facts. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. We have been rolling out with the articles each week, uh, consistently putting articles out. Uh, when you check out the website, globalrecon.net, a pop-up will appear and you can enter your email address to opt in to the mailing list. Uh, I encourage you guys to do that. We are, like I said several times on previous episodes, we're working on product development. I can't talk too much about it. We have to finalize some details first, and I think you guys are going to be excited by some of the stuff that we're going to have available uh, for sale. And everything that we're going to be doing would be working with our veterans from different branches uh, and mainly from the soft community. So, like I said, go check out the website and uh, subscribe, sign up to the emailing list, and check out the articles that we're putting out every week. Uh, for this episode, I have two retired Green Berets on the podcast, uh, a gentleman by the name of Brian Myers and another gentleman by the name of Lawrence Schofield. Uh, they both served for a long time in the U.S. Army with uh, multiple rotations into Iraq and Afghanistan. And the reason they came on the podcast is so we can talk about uh, what they are starting this movement and... Uh, and this effort that they've started is called Raise the Black. And 
what they're doing is they're fundraising for the families of the fallen Iraqi special operations uh, warriors who are leading the fight against ISIS uh, on the Iraqi side. And the Green Berets in particular have a special relationship with the Iraqi counterterrorism forces as they helped stand them up uh, early on in the Iraq war. And they've went on, you know, hundreds of operations with these guys into some of the worst parts of Iraq. And both, and Lauren was a part of that and they had run operations with the ICTF, the Iraqi counterterrorism force into Sadr city, which at the time was probably the most dangerous place on the planet. And they also shared a story of, of one of their uh, operations into Sadr city. So it's very interesting. And there are some comparisons. If anyone you know, knows military history or studies military history, immediately when I was talking to the, to these guys off air, I, the first thing I thought of was the Vietnam Green Berets who served in Vietnam and worked alongside the Mountain Yards who were locals to the region in, in uh, South Vietnam. And they were terrific fighters. And uh, for years, the Green Berets who served in Vietnam worked with the Mountain Yards to fight against the North Vietnamese and the Viet Cong. And, uh, you know, they felt like because of the the political decision to pull out and the uh you know second and third effects of that was they were abandoning their brothers and over the years they'd done things to try and support them to get them to immigrate over to the United States and that kind of thing so it's just interesting how you know even though it's been 50 years and it's a different different war different terrain you know, these guys are still pretty much the same, you know, and it's, it's just interesting to see how that unfolds. So here's the conversation I had with Lawrence Schofield and Brian Myers. Uh, so here, check it out. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. We have a great episode for you guys this week. I have two guests on, uh, one is a guy by the name of Brian Myers, and another is Lawrence Schofield, uh, two former Green Berets. And we have an interesting episode for you guys. What's up, brothers? Hey, how, hey, you, doing, how you doing? Thanks for having us on. No, oh, man, thanks for coming on. Um, so you guys have been busy lately uh, working on a, a project, and it's really interesting because you guys are, are helping individuals that you fought alongside as they're in you know, kind of embroiled in a battle for their home country right now. And uh, so before we get into that, you know, I would like to talk about your backgrounds first, and then we can get into that. Sounds good, man. Yeah, uh, definitely. Go ahead. Yeah, Brian, you, you want to start? Yeah, sure. Uh, I'm a real of the original 18X race. Uh, I'm one of the original 18-year-olds. Sorry about that. Dog's kind of going a little crazy behind me. Uh, I was an 18 Charlie and then an 18 Fox. Spent all my time at third group. Uh, eight deployments, three to Iraq, two uh, or five to Afghanistan. And uh, worked hand-in-hand with uh, my three to Iraq. We're all with Area 4 uh, in one point of uh, shape or form. And 
now transitioning into owning my own humanitarian aid organization and uh, trying to continue that mission forward as a civilian. And and just for people who won't know, the, the 18 X-ray program was what exactly? The 18 X-ray program was uh, a program that started back in, man, when was that? 2000. Two, whatever, two thousand one. Uh, sorry. Uh, basically, it was just where it's a new program where you could come in off the streets and go directly into SF with you know obviously some uh, testing and, and approvals. So you know you no longer had to wait, you know, do your time inside the military. So basically, I came in um, with a Ranger contract with the Eleven uh, X contract, and then in Airborne Holdover, a few of us were asked. Uh, to try out for this new new pipeline and went to airborne school and then I got my orders to brag and uh, the rest is history as they say. Right. So before this, this program, 18 X-ray program was uh, brought about guys had to be in for a couple of years before they could decide that they wanted to become a green beret. Yes. Yes. Uh, you had to be, I believe the E five. Uh, uh, it's changed over the years. Um, when I went through, um, you had to be um, E4. Okay. Um, you didn't have to be promotable, but you got promoted while you're in the course because it's so long. And uh, I'll just go and come to my background. I uh, I always wanted to be a Green Beret since I was you know a little kid, and uh, so I did some college after high school, and then never wanted to be an officer always wanted to enlist but i wanted to get some college in so i enlisted as a infantry um went to 25th spent two and a half three years as a light infantry and a scout um before i went to selection and i pretty much dropped my packet as soon as i was eligible as soon as i met the bare minimum time and grade time and service uh standards I started my process to go to uh, selection. I uh, went through selection, passed. Eventually, uh, about a couple months later, went to uh, Fort Bragg and went through the Q course. Uh, since I've been in uh, my first team back in '99, we uh, we were went into Kosovo and we were there about seven eight days after the air war ended. I did two total trips to uh, Kosovo. My second one, we were there. Um, we were in our ops end watching the towers fall on 9-11. Shortly after that, um, I had already had orders for uh, moving from 10th group to 3rd group. And so I just kind of really got lucky, went to 3rd group. in. I got there December of 01. In early to mid-April of 02, we were... We were on the ground in Afghanistan. Um, I got four. I got a total of five trips to Afghanistan and two trips to Iraq. And uh, in Iraq, that's where me and Brian actually met. Or you know, when we uh, got to the unit going to Iraq, that's where we met. Um, he'd been. At, we'd been on opposite cycles in Afghanistan. Um, uh, you were what first battalion, Brian? Yeah. Uh... Originally a B-1-3 guy before heading over to B-2-3. Yeah, and I was in, uh, he was in 1st Battalion. I was in 2nd Battalion, so we kind of flip-flop. Um, battalions would flip-flop and uh, in Afghanistan. 
Um, B2, you know, the company where we went to B23 was the only, was a main one for a third group going to, uh, going to Iraq. And so we both just happened to go to that unit at the same time. And the rest is history. So one thing, you know, before we get into what you guys are doing now and, and why it's important. So Lauren, you said you, you knew you always wanted to be a Green Beret. Were you influenced by the Green Berets who were serving in Vietnam? It Yes, completely. Those guys um, were always my heroes. I would, I just, I read every book I could find in the school library, in the public library, or buying books at the bookstore. Any book dealing with, uh, you know, Vietnam specifically, but you know, Green Berets. You know, I read, I read some SEAL books, and you know, but there's something about the Green Berets and their mission and what they do, and working with the the locals and the. You'd start to see they were always fiction at this time because SOG, SOG operations were still classified. Right. So if you heard anything about them, it was always as a fiction, you know, that was probably pretty close to what they actually did, but they couldn't write it as, you know, nonfiction. And I just, I just fell in love with, with Green Berets, with SF. And that's, all I ever wanted to do and having the opportunity, you know, since I've been in to actually sit down and, and talk and meet these guys who are always my idols. That that's been a, one of the greatest experiences. Yeah. It's, it's incredible. And when we were off air, I was talking to Brian and we were just, and I just kind of mentioned offhand how, it was. It's amazing how the guys in Vietnam, you know, the Green Berets, the Mac V. Saw guys, were working with the Mountain Yards, and and they built connections with what with what was the indigenous force for the nation that they were working in, similar to what you guys have have done and are, are continuing to do, especially with the new project. And it's just incredible how you know a fifty year gap between Vietnam and 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 what's happening now. And still, the similar uh, actions that are taking place, you know. The yeah, go, go ahead. ahead, Brian. No, it, it's just it's intriguing to see the amount of compassion that's in in our community for that partnering force, those bonds that are forged. And it it doesn't matter the war zone or the time; it's all the same brotherhood that you that's forged through these uh, circumstances. And it was a huge impact to see going into the Q course and learning about uh, what happened with the Montagnards and, and that background because it's you're trained heavily on where your where your regiment's with the regiment that you're about to join. You get extensive history on that, and I never met one person that was okay with the circumstances that went with that because of that brotherhood and that bond that it was forged. So. Uh, yeah, it's definitely one of those things that it comes out and every single person I've talked to about what we're doing now, that's always the, uh, the analogy that's made is the Montagnards. And the, the Montagnards and the way the SF guys in Vietnam partnered with them and 
truly became a part of their culture and were adopted into their culture and fought and bled and died with each other. It, it created a bond that they still have to this day. And when we left Vietnam and all of these Montagnards were pretty much left on their own, it, it, was, it, it was a very dark mark on our, the soul of our regiment. It's something that still, it haunts the guys who were there, but me and Brian as descendants, you know, what are we probably fourth generation from Vietnam of uh, SF guys. And it's still very memorable and it's still something that you don't forget. And when Missoula fell, and they were trying, they were asking for our help. That's all I could think of was now I know what the Vietnam vets felt like when, you know, not trying to get political, but when President Obama refused to send advisors, refused to send, you know, aircraft or anything, any significant support to these guys that we had trained with, that we had fought, that we had bled, that we had died with. It, I, I instantly went back to Vietnam and how those guys must have felt, and I and I knew exactly how they felt. Exactly and, that gut wrenching pain that was just holy. Because me and Lauren, I was actually living uh, outside of Dubai when all this really took off, and Lauren was one of the very first people uh, people I conversated with. And as soon as we started seeing the news, we started talking and we both did a lot of work together. Uh, we worked with some former SF guys doing some analysis work and on what the actual threat was, because nobody really understood, obviously, the threat that ISIS presented. So a lot of us got together, uh, did some, uh, I don't want to say white papers, nothing was that official at the time, uh, on our analysis of what was going on and nobody wanted to admit it, uh, not to be a political, as Lauren said, nobody at the time wanted to admit how bad it really was. Yeah. And that was our conversations back and forth of how can we get involved? And at the time, the only thing either one of us could do or any of us, not even just me and Lauren again, uh, this is about the community because there was plenty of us talking about what was going on. Uh, and at the time that's what we could do, you know, is hey, we can at least, try to wrap our heads around what this is. And uh, I'll never forget sitting in my hotel in Fujera and, and emailing back and forth with Lauren saying, man, this is bad. And are, are you on the same page I am? And likewise, vice versa. And everybody agreeing like, yeah, this is bad. Yeah. So one of the, one of the kind of the, the distinction and, and what kind of separates the Green Berets from other soft units, because every soft unit has their specialty, uh, is the ability and the the amount of training that you guys undergo to work with the local and indigenous forces to uh, to fight, you know, whatever the enemy is. Now, in in Iraq, the particular elements of the Green Berets were responsible for standing up. Uh, the Iraqi counterterrorism forces, and and I know you guys were involved in in some capacity. Can we talk about some of that? Yeah, um, 
this was me and Brian both got there around 2007 when the ICTF, um, which is, as you said, the Iraqi Counterterrorism Force, um, was already established. And uh, they fall under ISOP, and you'll hear these terms, and I'm just going to explain them real quick. Um, Iraqi Special Operation Force. And then there's also the CTS, which is the higher level, the counterterrorism service. So the, the ICTF are kind of like they're, they're the equivalent of their tier one hostage rescue type unit. They also have uh, commandos who are more like uh, direct action, uh, similar to kind of a, a ranger battalion or ranger company, ranger platoon. Um, and that's how they work. So they had already been established by third group and fifth group and some other, some of the other groups would do rotations in, but third and fifth are the ones who were, did the, were really involved, the, the bread and butter of creating these guys. And, uh, they were given the, the order back in, I think it was 2003 and they didn't start the first class, didn't start training until early 2004. And the way they trained and the way they, well, first, the way they selected their guys and then the way they did their training, it created a really unique force, unique, especially in the Middle East. Um, because when the guys finished this training, and became operators in the ICTF, <clears throat> excuse me, they were not sectarian. They did right. not consider themselves Sunni. They did not consider themselves Shia or Kurd or Christian. They considered themselves Iraqi. And every other unit, you know, um, Iraqi army unit, it was always very sectarian. It was like, okay, these guys are Shia, these guys are Sunni. We have to be careful where we send them. And you know, working together is kind of an issue. Um, they can't go to this town. These guys can't go to that town. The ICTF, who their commander was a Kurd, um, kind of went that that all went away. And it was. Uh, are you talking about uh, very Bawari General? Uh... Uh, Fadil, yeah, General Fadil. Um, and uh, after their training, all of that stuff had been, for lack of a better term, beat out of them. Um, because they were forced, because of the type of training, very physically intensive, lack of sleep, very dangerous, you know, live fires, fast roping, um, you know, and it was a long duration. I think uh, I think the OTC, the operator training course, I think it was uh, four months long. And that that entire time, they weren't allowed to have any contact with anybody outside of the unit. So they weren't talking to their families. They weren't talking to their village elder or their mullah or any of this other stuff. And so they were forced to rely on the people who, the guys who were on the left and right, and it didn't matter if they were Sunni and it didn't matter if they were Christian or Kurd. And by the time they finished, they considered themselves Iraqi and they 
took extreme and they still do take extreme amount of pride when they have finished this course and they have become part of this uh, these units um and that's that's something that needs to be i in my opinion needs to be looked at because sectarian violence is such a problem over there and it's going to be a problem when they push dash out of missoula yep. they're going to be having a lot of sectarian problems because you know the sunnis don't think they were treated right um they were under the the thumb of of isis and the government of iraq didn't do enough all the shias were killed by the sunnis um and you got iranian influence into that whole mix which is uh stir which it's their intent to stir everything up and so there's going to have to be you know some plan after after isis on how to fix all this and the isof the the cts the iccf the commandos these guys are like the role model for iraq they should be they're the national heroes over there they're the patriots they're the ones who are standing up and fighting they're not they're the ones who didn't run they're the ones who took a heavy toll and are still taking a heavy toll because they were always because they were the only ones who were able to fight they were sent from battle to battle to battle and they just they got it tritted but they're the ones who saved their country right. and if that can be looked at maybe there's there's a chance that after ISIS after Dash is gone, we can get past this. They can get past the sectarian issues that are going to happen. Um, that's a goal and that's a, the plan for me. But getting back to their their you know when they were created, once they were they were trained in initially they were trained in Jordan and until a facility could be built in uh, in Iraq for them to train at and. SF guys trained them, SF guys selected them, and then once they were had finished the operator training course, it was SF guys who went on missions with them. It was SF guys who helped them with their planning, who mentored them, who partnered with them. And it was these same guys who were going back year after year, you know, four months on, four months off, four months on, four months off. And they they created this this great bond and it's a form of one of our core missions is foreign internal defense and that's where you go into foreign armies or uh, different countries and you work with their military and you you train their military most fid isn't they're not allowed to go on combat operations with their partner force so what we were doing what what these guys in the beginning and what me and Brian jumped in on it's unofficially it's called combat fit it's where you train them and then you go and you fight with them and that training and that bond and that bond of 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 combat of war created something that's incredibly strong that will never be forgotten just like the vietnam vets with their montyards they they'll never be forgotten and that's how we feel about our guys because we did all of this and our goal was always to train ourselves out of a mission and 
around 08, my second trip there, you know, we were finally starting to see, you know, that light at the end of the tunnel where they can get a mission, they can do their own planning, and they can go and do missions on their own. I saw it multiple times. And it was it was like seeing your kid being able to, you know, go out in the world or do something, you know, really, really great. And And there was a pride in that. Even though there were times we wanted to go out on the mission, you know, but we couldn't because we weren't authorized to go out. But seeing them go out and do it and do it successfully and professionally, that that was a great feeling, at least for me. I've been talking, Brian. Did you want to jump in? No, dude, I love it, man. And and you're spot on on everything. And uh, just like on our phone calls, man, and <laughs> we we talk for hours for a reason, man. Uh, literally hours but uh that's the thing that sticks out the most is the pride that we have to sit back and see what these guys are doing uh giving them tools and training and the brotherhood that went into it the bonds that were made you can't help but be proud to see that one of the main reasons that iraq has any chance at all was these guys that we call brothers and their their compassion for for their country, their love for country that you helped instill into them, and it was the, all the all the nights that you spent with these guys downrange, and they'd ask you about you know Texas pride because everybody knows about Texans and and the pride that we have, and then the American pride and and why that exists, and uh, you know there's often conversations about comparing you know the texas pride almost to a tribe type thing compared to uh boston pride or other areas pride and the one thing that really stuck out to these guys was it all boils down to it's all a pride within yes on almost a tribal level but nobody puts that pride before american pride and and instilling that into them and they took it and they ran with that and they love their country they put aside their differences and uh they rolled with it. They took their training to heart and they love their country. And like Warren said, their attrition rate, they, they've been hit hard and they have sacrificed more than people will ever know uh, for their country. And you can't help but love that. And there's not a day that goes by that we don't want to be there. I mean, a couple of my buddies uh, that have been able to be fortunate enough to continue that fight, you know, the first the first thing I told him, he, I got a phone call from that, that region. And he's like, I'm here, man. And I'm just, my first thing was about five minutes of, I hate you. I hate you. And we'd talk a little bit longer. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, bro, I hate you. Just so you know. And <laughs> because I couldn't be there. And it's about the same time that all this was going on with Lauren. And uh, that's when the long talks happened about, you know, this idea that Lauren had had about the flags. Uh, yeah, I wasn't seeing, you know, the, the in-state. I wasn't seeing the so what. And then we had one of those epic freaking Lauren and Brian conversations like we had so many nights in Iraq in our little bitty crappy freaking intel room that I loved so much. And we just talked, man. And we talked on the phone for a good two, three hours, man. And uh, I was the people here uh, at the apartment complex probably thought I was crazy because I just walked around. I like to walk and talk. And I was on the phone forever. And that's when, you know, at the, at the end of that conversation led to this. And uh, 
is a way that we can show them that we're so you know, we do have that pride for these guys. We do have that love for them. And you just want to there's so much you want to do. How can you do it? So this is our way of showing them how proud we are and that the brotherhood's still there. Right. And it's interesting because not only were these guys uh, doing a lot of work during the height of the Iraq war against Al Qaeda in Iraq and, and some of the other militias, but they, from what I understand, they pretty much single-handedly stopped ISIS from advancing on Baghdad. And what I've been told is that they were uh, manning checkpoints, uh, doing kind of conventional soldier work because a lot of the Iraqi army had just fled from their post and, yep. and weren't uh, fighting. So these guys had to step out of their roles as 100%. counterterrorism operators and, and do whatever it took to, to hold their ground. And, and that's what they did. And, uh, it, it's interesting. and that's what, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, on, that, on that point real quick, man, not to cut in real quick. What's funny is I, I wanted to get something out there on that exact topic was uh, a lot. I've seen a lot of people make fun of the ISOF guys because they, they're daylight wearing all black. Yeah. And uh, I want to, I want to address that right now. Yeah, right I've here. seen that too. Because yeah. I've, I've actually not in a, in a overwhelming way, but I've had to correct some people on, on social media making fun of these guys. They're in all black because they're in all black. They're a, a nighttime unit. That's what they're designed for. They're not designed for day fighting, uh, as you can imagine. And when they were asked to step into those roles, they did it without hesitation for their country. They're in all black because that's the color they chose because it was the ch color we all chose together. And that's what they love. That's their color. That's what this race to black is so important. And these dudes, I see, I want to, sorry, this kind of gets my blood going. When I see these people making fun of them, they don't understand the quality of soldiers these guys are. They stepped out of the roles that we train them on. All this conventional stuff, we never touched it. But they're doing it very well. And they took a high toll to learn those those mistakes that they were making because we weren't there to help, but they still rolled with it. They still went through the attrition rates. They still held their ground in roles that they had no training in whatsoever. And they did it very, very. And so I, uh, sorry to jump in. I know it's a tangent, man, but I had to clarify that real quick because it all boils down to the same thing. They took a hard, hard toll because they do stick out. They weren't yeah. trained on these things and they are in all black and they, they don't match in their trucks, but that's where a lot of that comes from. Sorry, man. Sorry, Lauren. <laughs> no, okay. no, no. Um, it, it, it's very frustrating um, seeing, you know, comments and people talking, you know, like, like you guys said, where they only, when they think of Iraqi army or, you know, Iraqi security forces, all they think about is the, the vehicles left behind by in Missoula, the, the uniforms stripped off and the weapons thrown to the ground and these guys, these entire units being slaughtered, you know, being led to the slaughter by uh, ISIS. And so when you're trying to tell them, Hey, these are, these aren't those guys. These are the guys who made a difference, who stood up, who actually fought, but you hear them talking smack when I'll post a picture on, on Instagram or on Twitter and they'll be like, ah, Iraqi, whatever. No, no, no. These guys have done more, have given more for their country, have sacrificed more for their country than probably anybody on earth right now. Um, you know, it's at the level of 
the people who fought for America in the Revolutionary War. 100%. That level of patriotism, that level of bravery, that level of spirit, of warrior spirit, and they're not stopping. And the fact that they're pushing back, me and Brian were talking about yesterday, we thought we had more time to get these flags down range because we wanted them to be flying from the uh, trucks going into Missoula. And we were both like shocked at how fast, I don't think, I mean, I was hearing, you know, people, you know, strategists talking about, you know, Missoula, they wouldn't be able to go into Missoula till sometime this year. And then yep. all of a sudden, they, you know, they went in and, took, you know, Western Missoula or, uh, yeah, Western Missoula, you know, and all of a sudden it was done. And then they were prepping to go across the river and take east. We're like, holy crap, we got to get off our ass and do something. <laughs> um, we got to get these flags made. And, you know, the reason they're doing that is because they have learned so many hard lessons because they have fought and, and died and they've learned these new tactics. Um, you know, you'll see, see guys, you know, sticking a gun over, over, you know, a saw over the top of the roof and, and shooting or, or coming around a building and, and shooting from the hip. Yeah. It's, it's not the way we trained, but guess what? You know, that's a whole different battle. And I was thinking about this yesterday. Me and Brian, we, we went into Sodder City multiple times at the height when Sodder City was probably the most dangerous spot on earth. And well, it it, it was a black, it was a hoot. It was awesome. <laughs> but <laughs> I, I don't think anybody who was with us will disagree with that because we had we had a lot of we knew going in going through those gates, going into Sodder that yeah, we might get in, you know, without them, you know, shooting at us, but we weren't getting out. Without we weren't them. getting out without it. <laughs> right, so, <laughs> exactly. A lot of the ops but that you this, guys ran in Sauter City, the ISOF, ICTF was with you guys, right? Oh, exactly. In, in fact, um, I think it was, I don't know exactly when, but I know when we were in there in 08, ICTF was the only unit that was allowed to go into Sauter city to do, uh, to do raids. Um, no other U S forces like doing what we do. I'm not saying there weren't like military, you know, cause there was a cop there and, and, you know, there was a military unit in charge of that, but doing these HVT raids, these night raids, the only American unit allowed to do those was the ones working with the ICTF. Yeah, and and just to emphasize Solder City and how fun it is, you know a place is legit when you look forward to getting on Route Irish. <laughs> and just so everybody knows, Route Irish is not a place you want to drive. Yeah. All right, so you, you guys spend a lot of time, you know, in Solder City uh, working with ICTF. Can you share a story with the audience that will – kind of give them a, a picture, an idea of what it was like operating there during those times. Yeah, man. Uh, it was, uh, it was a hectic time to, to paint a picture of, of Sauter city. Um, it was, it was a brutal place and we decided throughout the war to, to wall it off basically with these big, tall Texas barriers. And, uh, 
So there's only certain points that you can come in and out because it was such a dangerous place. They were trying to, to limit the area and the access in and out. And uh, we hit it often. And the way we'd hit it, we'd try to hit it ob- for obvious reasons, uh, fast and hard, and, and just get out. Uh, we try to limit our time like you do any time on target. And uh, we rolled but, this one. Go ahead. Let, let, me, let me jump in on that. The, the reason it, it was so important, that, that uh, tactic was so important for Sauter City is um, imagine a baseball field. Yep, and, that's what I was just fixing to say. Um, yeah. yeah, and it, it's, it's uh, all the tea barriers basically fortified that city and, and surrounded that city. Um, how many, there were like 2 million people inside this small mm-hmm. area, um, all Shia. And it's where Gam, you know, did a lot of their, Muqtad al-Sadr did a lot of uh, his uh, operations out of because he had the support. But because of those tea barriers, there were only, I think, three gates that yeah. you could go into Sadr City. And the Shia militias in Sadr City, they had pre-positioned on every single road multiple locations on every single road they had pre-positioned ieds and so and they had guards and they had watchers watching these you know two or three gates that we could come into and so as soon as we went in you know busted that that gate it, it you know the countdown started and they would you know shoot a couple of rounds into the air to let people know that the americans were there and people had different missions, you know, the Shia militias members had different missions. You know, the, each person was assigned a specific IED. So they'd wake up, they'd go down to their IED that they were supposed to watch. They'd hook up the detonator to it, and then they'd just wait. And if we drove back along that road, they would detonate the IED. If it was over, they'd, you know, unhook it and go back to bed. Um, so the, the plan and this entire time, once the gunshots, once the early warning was announced, the ground troops started to mass, they would start getting together and that you'd hear the shots getting closer and closer because they're trying to find us. They were trying to find the exact location where we were, where we were, and they could move fast. They could mass really quickly and they could mass and move really quickly. And so the idea was to go in balls to the walls as fast as you could before they could get these IEDs set up, do the target, spend, I think, I think our time limit was no longer like 20 minutes. We were back in the truck rolling out. Yep. And then, but the, the, the catch was always to how are we getting out of here in a way <laughs> that they don't understand, they don't expect. Um, and so we would always come up with a very unique and interesting way to expel out of the solder city that didn't hit any of the main roads. So go, go ahead, Brian. Yeah. And, uh, what, you know, that, that's just it. it was their response time was outstanding. Uh, it was actually pretty impressive. The network they had within their, their fortified walls. Uh, and we really restricted our own, uh, or limited our own possibilities coming in and out. And that's just it going in. You knew that they didn't care. Uh, they wanted you in there. They wanted to fight. You're never going to have issues getting into their area. It was getting out of that area. It was always the issue. And, uh, whether you're 
whether you came in and, and depending on how deep you got and by deep by how deep I got or we got is based on going into Solder City, it was based on a baseball diamond, as Lauren had mentioned earlier. And home plate was was just like in baseball. It was safe. You're good to go. Uh, first base was all right. Uh, third base was all right. Pitcher's mound, shortstop, and second base, that was that was no-go land. <laughs> that was their area, and they owned it very, very well. Uh, they were deeply fortified. So depending on how deep you went in is, you know, the route we decided to take out. Because if we're, if we're in there very deep, we have to get out as quickly as possible. And because we knew the amount of, of uh, attack that we'd be undergoing through uh, or exiting. And a lot of times we bounce out of uh, New Baghdad, which is a shithole. Don't let the new Baghdad fool you. Uh, and we get stuck in these huge dumps. <laughs> it was literally landfills that we get stuck in, and it sucks so bad. But uh, so this one night we hit this, we got this call. We took the target and uh, we rolled out. We got in. We think we're moving fast, man. Uh, you know, the typical little couple shots fired. Uh, but it was it was really without incident. Uh, time was quick. We were under our mark. We uh, we got our guy. We're heading out. And I'm manning the 50 cal on the striker at this point. And uh, contrary to what the, they wanted you to do, um, we actually dismounted the remote control con- arm for the, the remote weaponized uh, 50 cal. So we could take that joystick up to the top and still be outside the vehicle so we can, we can look with our eyes instead of using that screen. And that, that takes a lot of the contractors off. But, you know, it – made us more effective at what we were doing on the gun. So I'm sitting out the hatch and we're getting ready to roll and you just have that feeling. So I'm starting to get into the truck and that's when the explosion happened and the Abrams in front of us, an IED had gone off and it's this massive explosion. It was huge. And everybody's trying to count their bearing or get their bearings, you know, like what just took place. And I'm looking down at now I'm seated back in my gunner seat and I look up at the screen and I just see this, ass into this abrams just hauling ass on top of the damn striker so we're over the radio yelling you know stop 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 because we're about to be crushed by our own freaking tank and finally he stops uh and i just remember seeing as you know there's no gunfire we knew it was just an id uh every calls go over the radio make sure everybody's good everybody's safe no casualties and everybody's moving it <laughs> and uh Lauren will kill me or the guys will kill me for, for this one. But so <laughs> it comes apparent very quickly that we're missing a Bradley. And uh, by missing, I don't, I, I, it didn't explode. We're just like, there's definitely not a Bradley here. Uh, so we're trying to get radio comms. And now we're, we're going from a, all right, you know, an urgency to a panic, like, holy crap. We are actually, we are literally missing a Bradley. Like it's gone. So we call over the Apache, uh, we call over the uh, comms, and we link up with this Apache that's covering us, our movements. And we're like, hey, man, we had to explain to this Apache that, hey, can you fly over solder and see if you see a rogue Bradley? <laughs> and and the, the Apache pilot's like, come again? <laughs> we're like, yeah, man, seriously, just what you heard uh we're missing a bradley so in this this explosion was so big that in order to get 
in the chaos, this Bradley had taken off, thinking that it was it only moved so far. But as you can imagine, in the chaos of war, uh, he was disoriented. And, and at that point, they didn't know where they were, so they were just trying to find our convoy. And just like a typical male, <laughs> instead of asking for directions, they just kept driving. <laughs> and they, so when the Apache said that they found them, they were freaking way past Pitcher's Mound heading to third base. And we're just like, bro, we need you. This is their frequency. You need to tell them to turn around. And now it's from a panic to a, just a whole mind blown. This is about to be an international incident. We're about to lose a Bradley to solder <laughs> and they're going to capture this thing uh so we finally got a you know the apache got a hold of them we we all got linked up headed out uh you know plus we're now we're stuck inside solder even longer uh, and we linked up with the bradley we went out through new baghdad get stuck in this dump again it's probably the fifth time now uh we're in this freaking dump but it was just that's the chaos that Baghdad or uh, solder was is here's this we've been with this element on I, I can't even tell you how many missions and they are squared away they are rock was an amazing element to work with they were professional they were young but professional and man they didn't they'd love to get it on and even they in all their experiences and all their ID IEDs uh, that they experienced still got turned around because it's solder and they line the roads with cars and they still, they literally still are Jersey barriers from outside of Sauter city and bring in to use against us and manipulate the road systems uh, to force you and tunnel you in. They were brilliant. And here's this freaking Bradley just cruising around. I don't know how they, I will never know how they didn't hit an IED, didn't get captured. All I can imagine was all of Sauter's army was like, dude, this has got to be a setup. <laughs> this, this this has got to be a setup, bro. So, yeah, that was uh, that's that solder. It's just chaotic. It, you can't really put it into words unless you've been there. It's just chaos. It's crazy. It's confusing. Everything looks the same. It's a it's a bad dream. <laughs> what do you think, Warren? It, it's a slum. It's a slum with something like two million people in it heavily compressed heavily urbanized area narrow streets and just a, a, a worn of roads and wires and trucks and cars and buildings everywhere um isn't that the one where we decided to have the uh abrams drop uh, push over a tea barrier yes and we just <laughs> drove over drove out yeah. through the wall because yeah. we didn't want to go back uh because we'd been there so long um yep. We knew it was going to be bad if we tried to go back through the oh, main man. road. And man, did the, the oh. AO commander throw a fit over oh, that he, one? Oh yeah, we got yeah. We they they weren't very happy with that. But the reason I even brought up Sauter City in the first place is as bad and as confusing as that place was. As as many fighters and intermixed with civilians as there were it's nothing compared to what they're what the ictf what the isof are seeing in missoula right now um because we didn't do anything we allowed them to take over missoula reinforce it and then fortify it they're fighting in something that's 
completely different than anything we saw before. It's, you know, house multiple houses are completely wired to blow. Um, they're hurting, you know, Dash is hurting and forcing civilians in to this area that they're controlling, the small area that they're controlling. And there was that recent uh, attack in Missoula, air attack uh, last week. Um, some say up to 200 civilians were killed. It's going to happen. It, we let them get such a foothold. The only way, there's no clean way to get them out. You can try to save as many civilians as you can. But if you're in, if, if the people of America insist that we not use air power because there might be civilians hiding in the basement or being held prisoner in the basement that Dash's fighters are shooting from with the intent of us bombing it. So they have this psychological operation win against the coalition, against America, that they can point and say, hey, look, they're killing innocent innocent civilians. And if you look at everybody talking about now, that's all they're talking about. They're not understanding the type of warfare that it is. When you have, you're fighting people who don't care, who want innocent civilians to die because that's, they consider that a win for them. Then there's going to be civilians who are killed. The only way to do it is to do it hard and do it fast. The faster you do it, the less time, the less pain, it's like a Band-Aid, the less it'll hurt to going off. It's going to hurt either way because because of every option for the last two years was the wrong one. Now the only options we have are bad ones. And the people of Iraq are the ones who are paying for our inaction over the last two years. And, and that's what makes this difficult right there is you look at solder. We, we've been at war for how long now as, as a, uh, as a country, uh, even with all of our experiences in combat as, as a, as a country, not just a unit or, or, uh, a, a branch as a whole, we still didn't expect what we were going to see in Missoula with all of our vast experiences in war. We still did not see this coming. And then in comparison to solder, look at how difficult solder was. And we thought we figured this out. We thought we knew this monster, but then we didn't look back and say, all right, well, everybody that's in solder wants to be in solder. They're all supporters, their families. They support what's going on there. Where Missoula, they are not. These people are trapped. They've been, they've been held prisoner there. They've been held hostage there. So a lot of these people are civilians that were just trapped in a bad situation. So like Warren said, there's going to, it's, you can't war game this from, from the couch. You know, these decisions are being made and we're dealing with a very, very, very evil entity in ISIS. And that's what to tie right back to our guys. And that's what ICTFCs is. It's the, there's a picture out there right now that uh, we both share on our, on our Instagrams that it's so powerful to me that shows the difference in, in 
the ICPF guys and what's going on in Missoula and these things in ISIS. And cause you know, they're both wearing the black and there's the raised the black and people are kind of, some people have questioned that color and why, cause it relates to, all right, here's the difference. There's a picture of an ICTF guy eating, has a food, a tray of, a tray of food and this little girl sitting on the Humvee. And it was Valentine's day in Iraq. And that was the, the caption for this, this picture that shows the love and compassion that these guys have for their country, for their people. Like Lauren has stated earlier, this is their revolution. This, this is their, their pride and patriotism. You can't, a lot of people in our society right now can't fathom that because they are not fighting. We're not fighting for our country per se. They are, there's their country's survival depends on their actions. And it's, it's crazy to see that difference. And so when people are trying to relate them, it's one of those things that it gets frustrating. And this is the difference. These ISIS in Mosul, you're seeing the brutality, forget the YouTube videos, forget the stuff we already know ISIS has done. That's where these bombings, we're going to see these catastrophic events. This is not the time to get on your high horse. Where were you on your high horse when they were beheading people and drowning them in tanks and throwing them off buildings? Sorry, I'm the, on a tangent. All these people who are complaining about these civilian casualties are feeding into and allowing ISIS to win their information operation. Yes. They, every pundit who go and and these americans they're just doing it because they hate trump you know all these people on twitter or in the news or whatever they just hate trump and so they're using this indirectly to attack trump what they don't understand is they're actually helping isis right. they are like and and not even a little bit they are giving isis exactly what they want by making a big deal and blaming America and slowing down the attack because of this, just so an investigation can be done. That's the last thing we we don't need to slow down. We need to speed up to get it over with. The only the, the reason I even brought up Sauter City originally, and we've chased a bunch of rabbit trails, but that's me and Brian's brain. That's how we work. Um, the closest historical example that I can think of to what Missoula and Rock is going to be even worse because they're taking all these lessons from Missoula and they're going to be doing the same thing. So when we actually go in and try and drive them out of Missoula or out of Raqqa, it's going to be so much worse than, than what we're seeing right now. But the closest comparison is Stalingrad during World War II. Um, it's that level of fighting, that level of chaos, you know, people everywhere. You've got, you know, Stalin wouldn't let the people of Stalingrad leave because he wanted them to stay. And so there, he, he forced 40,000 of his own people to stay in Stalingrad and had to stay there for the entire fight. Um, that's the level of... of chaos and just brutality that we're seeing in Missoula. And the only person to blame in my book 
the only person that the person who owns all of this blame on our side, yes, it's ISIS. They're the ones who are doing it. You know, all it's their fault. But President Obama's refusal to act, refusal to do anything, or to slow roll any action, allowed them to fortify Missoula. If we had helped our brothers in 2014, helped our partner, helped our ally in 2014. They never would have been able to fortify as much. People wouldn't have been, we would have been able to drive them back into Syria. It would have been, a lot of people would have died anyway, but a lot less people would have died if we had done that than are dying right now. And I believe that with every, that that's not partisan, that's not Democrat, that's not Republican, that's fact that's true right um he just wanted to get out of iraq so bad he refused to do the hard make the hard call of allowing our troops to fight with iraqi troops and to call in air and use all that stuff he did it piecemeal little by little the guys who did go to iraq back then they were so hamstrung by what they were allowed and weren't allowed to do they, they couldn't accomplish anything, and they were watching their brothers die on ISR on, through the surveillance footage, and they couldn't do anything about it because of the rules of engagement. Right, and, you know, the, the whole, you know, ISIS gaining a psychological operations-type victory with having people in the West and America saying, oh, you know, call for investigations and, and do all this that's going to slow down the push against them is really kind of like a classic you know terrorist play you know out there playbook and and you've seen it for years um in the israeli you know palestine conflict and and it's it's something that they do all the time and we know that they're doing it but it still works because it, it works on the people who who only see see it from one kind of viewpoint and really don't understand what it takes to win a conflict versus, you know, just, you know, backseat uh, quarterbacking type of stuff for the people who are fighting. I, exactly. Uh, exactly. I was actually having a, a discussion or I, I, I was uh, interacting with some people on Twitter a couple of days ago. And there's, if the only, you have two options, you either drive ISIS out, or you let them stay and letting them stay isn't an option. Plus the people who are stuck under their rule are, are just being oppressed and killed and murdered and just, it's a horrific life. So allowing them to keep Missoula isn't an option. So you have to drive them out. And the, only way to do that is by force and the only using force civilians are only are going to die. The only option that we have is an information operation. We have to get as a country, the president, the military, um, we have to not let them use this weapon, not let them use the civilians as weapons. And what I'm, let it not be effective is what I mean. They're going to do it, 
We have to tell people that they're going to do it. We have to tell people that we have accepted that risk. We will mitigate it as much as possible, but we are not going to let them use this tactic against us anymore. And they'll still use it, but when they see that it's not effective, they'll move on to something else. Right. They'll still do that because us as Westerners have this, we value human life, so it'll always be part of it. But if we can get in front of the message and tell them and tell the world what's going on and what they're doing and that we're not going to let them let it work anymore, it'll actually save lives in the long run because, you know, why should they spend the time, manpower, resources holding all of these people prisoner when it's not working? when we're not letting it work. It's ugly, it's brutal, but there there there's no other option. Yeah, and it's it's so interesting because uh on the podcast previously I had a um a former Mac VSOG team leader and he had a few rotations into Vietnam. His first he was on an A team, his second rotation was with SOG and then he, he ended up getting wounded and he was medically retired. And one of the we were talking about kind of that area of of what war is like, you know, where civilians get killed and and that kind of thing. And what he said was that you know, regardless of of what you think of war, it's ugly either way. And the best thing to do is just to get it over quickly uh, versus letting it drag out. And Vietnam compared to what's happening now is is similar in the the kind of conflict. You know, the, the terrain difference makes a huge difference in, in the way it's fought. But uh, I think just hearing that from a guy, you know, who's in his 70s and who, who fought through a, a really crazy time and then how it applies to now is just, like, astounding, you know? Oh, yeah, definitely. Exactly. The, I mean, the enemy that we fight as Americans, whether it's the Viet Cong, the NBA, you know, North Korea... Um, Japanese in World War II, they never, they don't value life like we do, like Americans do, like Westerners do. And they have constantly used this tactic of terror and trying to get American soldiers to kill civilians so they can then go and prove to the world how bad America is, how bad America, I've heard the Guardian called this thing in Missoula the worst atrocity since me in Vietnam. (laughs) That's crazy. And like, it's insane. It's, It's comparing this collateral damage that wasn't intended to kill civilians to, it, it's comparing that and putting it on the same level as what ISIS has done to all of their prisoners, right. to the, their 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 people. 
Yeah, and, and, and you, you see ISIS do it all the time, like in horrific ways. You know, like they, they get creative with how they kill people and, and, you know, they're editing the videos. They got music in the background. Like it's it's like it's fucking cool, you know. And and, and just for the Guardian to do that is really in, insane. And I know when, you know, the guys running ISIS's like social media handles and all that. When they see it, they, they're like, all right, we, we achieved a small victory or a victory, you know. Yes. And, and that's it, man, is is what the people don't understand is we are allowing uh, the media in general to impact the war. And in, there's nothing different now than there was two years ago when all these creative ways ISIS was brutally murdering people. But now trying to save people, people die by accident. It's a big deal. It's all media. It's all political. And, and that's ridiculous. You're allowing politics at that level because your own opinion and personalities to impact the, the war. Yeah. That, that's once we've decided that war is the answer, there's no time for that. I'm not saying, you know, collateral damage is horrible. But what's worse, the fact that these people have to live that way for an uh, undetermined amount of time. I mean, no, we, this is, things are going to happen. And it, people don't understand that we have to embrace violence. And if you don't understand what I mean by embracing violence, then you do not need to be part of this discussion. Uh, I wrote a paper about it a while back uh, for Havoc Journal on just this topic of embracing uh, violence. And a lot of people found it resonated with them, especially our types of what it means to embrace violence. Embracing violence doesn't mean that you have to be this evil person. Luckily, there's people like us that do that for the right reasons. And if you don't understand it, you are you are hindering pro, uh, productivity and progress. And we're seeing that right now in Mosul is the hindrance because you don't understand what needs to happen. You have a false sense of security in your own beliefs that you understand more when you don't. And, and it, it's it's sad because we allow that to impact what's going on. Yeah, and you know, it's kind of touching back on the similarities from Vietnam to now. Like, uh, there was a period in Vietnam where the North Vietnamese went on what was called the Tet Offensive, right? I'm sure you guys are familiar with that. And it it was like this huge offensive where all across the country they were attacking American and South Vietnamese bases, right? And militarily, it turned out to be a huge disaster for the North Vietnamese who were attacking, but they won the psychological operation because some reporter here in the States had decided that the war was unwinnable and called it, I I believe he called it a stalemate. And, and once that happened, it was like, Oh my God, we lost Vietnam is over. Pull, pull everybody out. But the truth is that the North Vietnamese made a huge mistake by doing that. And had the news media stayed out of it, or had the you know the generals and the politicians said you know what ignore this and push, it, it would have been a different outcome you know. Yes, exactly, exactly. Hey, so um, we kind we did we did the background. We you guys gave a story and and spoke about a lot of that stuff. Now, can we talk about exactly what it is you guys are doing with this Raise the Black uh, campaign? <laughs> of course. Lauren, run with that one. Yeah. Our, our initial plan 
um, you know, it started with the desire to to show and send our brothers in the ICTF, the commandos in in ISOF, send them something to let them know that no matter what our administration did, we hadn't forgotten them. We still considered them our brothers, and we still remembered. We still valued what they, we knew what they were doing. And it, it really, the, the whole idea of raise the black, um, it's kind of funny because I'd been watched uh, Black Sails, but I was kind of all like in a pirate mood. But then I happened to see on one of the ISOF uh, Instagram pages, in their bio, it had said, fear the men in black trucks. And it, everything just kind of clicked. All this stuff that had been in my, the back of my head kind of clicked with Raise the Black, you know. On top of the ISIS flag, they call it the black flag um, all throughout the Middle East. And I wanted to create something for our brothers, but I wanted to steal the power of that black flag away from ISIS. I wanted to give them a black flag to fear. And the fact that ISOF has black trucks, they wear black uniforms, it just, everything kind of fit. And, and I actually, you know, I made a uh, meme, you know, a while back um, when this all kind of was coalescing in my brain and it said, you know, um, don't fear the black flag, fear the men in black trucks. And, you know, talking with Brian and, and a bunch of other guys, it all kind of, you know, we, we really came up with this plan and we came up with this idea of this flag. The flag, it it's a... It's a pirate flag, but it's it's a modified version of a flag to highlight the how close the U.S. Special Forces and ISOF really is. You know, instead of crossed sabers, it has crossed arrows. You know, crossed arrows are has been a symbol of Special Forces since our inception. And you know, the the. At the top of it, it has New Stephions, which means we defy. It's a very, it's almost like a fuck you in French. It, it has that same attitude of, you know, screw you. You know, we don't care what you say. And that that has been a, uh, a phrase and a symbol of, of uh, Special Forces uh, direct action themes. Since the, at least the 70s, I think, is when it, it can get tracked back to. Um, and so all of that with Raise the Black and having ISOF on it, it, it all kind of came together, you know, in the flag. If you look at it, kind of faded. You can see the uh, there's some wings coming out of, around, from around the skull. And that's, that's from the ICTF patch. Um, that's the directly taken from the uh, ICTF patch. So I wanted to use a lot of symbol symbolism to highlight how close our two units are. I wanted to give 
the icy the ice off guys something to to like a morale booster and something that the people of Iraq can rally behind because as we've said the people of Iraq see ISOF as heroes you know it's it's a very prestigious thing to be in in ISOF and people know that they're the ones who are saving their country they're the ones who are getting rid of dash and i wanted to have something that the iraqi people could be rally behind the isaf soldiers could be proud of and when dash sees these black flags coming they know you know to to paraphrase josie wales they know that hell's coming with them and that's kind of where it started and we've got a lot of other stuff coming up um that we're going to allow people to buy and help support this product and the end result the end goal is we want to be able to raise money to not only help the isof soldiers but to help the gold star families of all these isof soldiers who have died our brothers who have died we want to be able to tell their families that their american brothers didn't forget them haven't forgotten the loss and we haven't forgotten those families it's the same it's it's the same feeling that we have to our own gold star widows and children within our regiment that's the same feeling we have to the Iraqi Gold Star families. And we want to be able to help them and give something back to them. And, and that was th- that was the birth of it right there. Uh, through what Lauren was just describing, you know, there was a lot of conversation amongst the brotherhood. Uh, we, we spent many hours together on the phone. We'd have ideas and then we'd immediately go back to some of our groups and, and whether it was some media texting or whatever, we, we contacted the brotherhood. It's like, Hey, this is what we're doing. Uh, yes or no. Uh, what do you think? And that's the, when they realized that this was in order to keep our commitment to our brotherhood, to show them that we are still there in any way that we can be, we're going to be there. Uh, that's when it really started catching on and uh, rolling. That's when we started rolling because we saw the brotherhood. We knew that we that we saw their, our our brotherhood's response to what we were doing and uh, where we were going and the intentions. Uh, and then we saw, you know, Lauren designed a few things. We put it out there to get some feedback on social media, and the feedback we got instantly from uh, within. I'd say two or three hours of uh, a couple of our posts uh, that we did right back to back. The feedback and friend requests from ISOF guys, former and current, and how much pride they had. And it was every bit of the feedback was, oh, I love you, brother. You know, it's thank you, brother. And they see it. It's there. And that would just fuel the fire because they see what's coming. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at the GoFundMe link right now. Is this the main uh, link or or page where people can go if they want to uh, support? Yeah, that's for right now. That's the uh, that's how we're raising money to get all this stuff uh, 
um, designed, created, built, and shipped. Um, our goal is to get away, eventually get away from the GoFundMe. But right now, that that page is what's allowing us to uh, do what we we have been able to do so far. Right. And like like Lauren said, in, in the future, that is the primary right now is that GoFundMe account. Uh, but here in the in the hopefully near future, uh, we're gonna get away from that because the products are being made. Uh, but the the concept moving forward and the overall concept is uh, the establishment of a of a for profit business that the majority of all assets uh, majority of all assets coming in outside of admin costs goes right back to uh, the Gold Star families uh, through a board of trustees that are Iraqi. So we can we can work through them with them, you know, by with and through uh, our partnering forces to establish what their needs are for these families uh, while continuing to show the love to the military. Because obviously we can't fund uh, beans and bullets. We can't fund the war effort. We can't train these guys. However, we can give you swag. We can give you morale patches. We can do the. That's the kind of things we can show you that we still love you because they've learned a lot of that from us. They, you know, the cool guy baseball caps. That's the hands in pockets mentality is SF, and they've they've adapted that. So when we started uh, putting out there to them that this is what we're working on, uh, they loved it, and they they still love it. There's not a day that goes by since we've started this that I don't have one message or another. Uh, whether it's a comment, a direct message, whatever, from an ICTF guy or somebody, or actually now it's more along just Iraq. I get just Iraqis that message me now, uh, showing love for this. Yeah, I, I, I see a picture of, the, of one of the flags uh, on the uh, Washington Post article, and it's, it's really good, good design there, man. It was a good job. Oh, thanks. That's that's. Uh... A lot of uh, self-taught Photoshop, and now um, we're wanting to come up with uh, morale patches. Um, basically, uh, a simple, simplified design of the flag for a, uh, a Velcro PVC patch. Nice. But I'm having to teach myself uh, Adobe. Uh, um, crap! I just I just got it today. Um, it's a different uh, form or a different program to uh, to actually use to so we can send it off to get made. Oh, um, so I'm, I, I was spending. I know what you're talking about. Hold on, let me see. Illustrator, Adobe Illustrator. Yeah, there you go. Yep. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I was spending. I spent the last you know two or three hours like watching YouTube videos to try and figure out how to get this stuff done. And. <laughs> Just so you know, like going forward, our plan, um, we're going to be offering these flags and uh, some death cards that Lauren designed. And, and you know, he, he did a great job of, of designing these things and taking our thoughts and our input from when he would ask a question. And I tell you, when Lauren's on something, man, you get a million questions and I love it. And he'd hit me up and it'd be two at night. But hey, bro. Hey, look at this and see what you think. <laughs> and uh, I get on, I look at it, and sometimes I'm not going to lie, I'd be like, I'll, I'll deal with that first thing in the morning. But uh, he did a great job. He did a great job designing everything, and it it, it all hits home. Uh, but going forward, 
you know, we're going to have the death cards. We're going to have the, the flags. We have some other ideas that I won't leak out right now because they're pretty cool. We're just working through some issues or not issues, but working through them. Um, you know, we have the bumper stickers down range right now. We have, uh, you know, we're designing the, uh, the morale patch. So the point of all this is to sell these products and then turn that money back into, uh, uh, the gold star families and the support for ISOF. And it's also going to work in conjunction with, uh, my nonprofit organization at this time, uh, so we can hit it from both angles. And the reason we decided to do it, these two routes is to have two entities is there's a lot of red tapes and legal issues when it comes to funds going over, as you can imagine. Uh, nobody wants to see U.S. dollars going into terrorist hands and nobody damn sure wants to see tax-free money going into terrorist hands. So uh, that's that's why it's a for-profit and an, we have both entities. And we want it also for the for-profit is we don't want to have to rely on donations. Uh, we want this to be a self-sustaining, uh, self-sustaining program and we're on the right track right now. I think we have some really unique ideas, um, with the serial numbered items going forward. Uh, I'll let Lauren talk more about, uh, the items specifically, but that's the goal is we want to set this up and set them up to be successful so that they can sustain until their country can sustain them. Right now, they can't. Uh, they rely heavily on outside entities. And this is a way that we can step up, give that commitment back to them of, look, we have not forgotten about you. It took us a little bit on the civilian side a, a way to figure out how we can stay committed to you guys, but we have found it. And this is our path forward. And uh, so for for anyone in the audience who's interested in keeping up with this and contributing and, and helping uh, get the ball rolling or continue to roll, where can they go or, or what, what should they do? Uh, right now um, it's we're using our own personal uh, social medias and we have a Facebook page called raise the black. Uh, that's what we're updating. We're about to uh, have our own website here in the very near future of uh, RTB Uh uh, cg.com will be the website and uh, basically what that is I'll let I'll let Lauren go into it because he does a good job of describing why we chose RTB uh, so we will have that but right now currently it is the Facebook page it is uh, Lauren Schofield's uh, IG account it's the Bearded Brian's Instagram account uh, Lauren what what's your official it's Lauren underscore not a still correct yeah uh, yeah, so, and and the GoFundMe, it's uh, just that www.gofundme.com backslash raise, and then there's a dash the dash black. Um, so those we're updating them uh, constantly, um, and that's where we right now we're we're tied to those. We're about to, like I said, branch into our websites because basically it's been slow going because we've been very methodical about our decision process. We are very, very big on getting feedback from both the Iraq side and the U.S. side. This is not two guys, and this is something I was going to try to get in before the end of the cast, but since we're kind of on that uh, the podcast, we're kind of on that subject right now. So it's a very important for Lauren and myself to be very clear that this is not something that me and Lauren are doing. 
we have started the ball rolling, but this is a this is for everybody. This is about our community, our brotherhood of the SF regiment and our commitment to our brotherhood uh, or to our partnering forces. This is about ISOF and their success and showing the world that these guys deserve this attention. These are our brothers and they're doing an amazing job way beyond what we had trained them. This isn't, we gave them some tools, but they ran with this and they deserve to be recognized for their actions. And again, it's very important that the soft community, the SF community knows that this is not just us. This is not about us. This is about the community and everything we do we reach out to the community to say, hey, this is this is what we're thinking. Uh, what's your input? And it started with a small portion of the community because it's the only guys we knew that knew what was going on. And we always ask for that input. So that's what it kind of it does slow the ball down a little bit. But at the same time, it's what needs to be, it's what needs to happen. Yeah. So when um, what I'll do is on my website, when I post this uh the podcast notes for this episode, I'll have all the links uh, there for anyone who is interested and wants to contribute. You can just check out the website um, as well. My website, globalrecon.net, the the latest podcast article, it pops up on the homepage. And when you click there, the links will be on there. So you, you can just go nice. go directly to it uh, as they said, they told you. I'll put the links in the um iTunes description and the SoundCloud description. And, you know, so so you'll be able to get it through a, a bunch of different uh, avenues. And when when I, I first learned about what Brian and Lauren were doing, I thought it was, it was really um, intriguing because you have these two guys who have spent so many years in service of the country they're now out of the service and they're still figuring out ways that they can contribute and help. So, you know, like, like I said, I want everybody who's listening, if, if you can to contribute, um, you know, if you, if you feel like you're not in a position where you can put some money up, then just share the episode and share the GoFundMe and, and share the, uh, the social media handles. So that way more and more people can, uh, be aware of it and, you know, potentially, uh, contribute. And it's very much appreciated. It's not about me or Brian. It's not about us. It's about getting the word out for these guys downrange, these guys fighting. It's all it's about. And I, I, I got to second that, brother. It's, I appreciate you having us on. Uh, I'm sorry it took a little while after you first approached us. Uh, but as you can imagine, it's been really busy. But we wanted to make sure that we got with you. And I, I can't thank you enough for getting us on here. No, no worries, man. And, and uh, exactly, you know, I just want to thank you guys for coming on. I know you guys got a lot going on with this, and um, you know, obviously for the people who are out there now, for the Americans, for the Iraqis who are fighting against ISIS, you know, we think of you guys all the time, and and um, you know, this is like I said, this is just a you know a cog in the machine, and and. Eventually, ISIS will be pushed out of Iraq, and then eventually they'll be pushed out of Syria as well. But, uh, you know, th this is just a, a small part in the kind of big picture, but it's an important part. And, um, you know, I want to thank you guys for coming on, and, and thank you guys for your service as well. And thanks a lot, Sam. to you, brother. Thank you.
I'm going to post a picture of the flags on my website. And I also throw it up on the social media. The flags are really awesome. And um, so every time a flag is sold, they will send one over to Iraq uh, to the uh, ISOF guys who are out there fighting ISIS as we speak. And the uh, the flag is uh, on the top of it is it says Nos Defions, and that's the that's We Defy, which is the um, kind of what they go by in the counterterrorism arm of the Green Berets, uh, known as the SIF, the Commanders and Extremist Force. They might have changed that name. Uh, I'm not exactly sure now, but that's what they go by. And then you have Raise the Black. On the bottom, it says ISOF, and then there's a skull with a sword and two arrows going across uh, to to symbolize, you know, the Green Berets. And around that is the the symbol to symbolize uh, ISOF and ICTF. So these flags are really awesome. What Lauren and Brian are doing is incredible. You know, if, if from listening to the conversation, both of them have multiple deployments uh, as Green Berets into Iraq and Afghanistan. And even though they're they're out now, they're retired now, they still continue to try and figure out ways that they can contribute and ways that they can serve uh, those who need it. And it's just incredible. And, you know, I couldn't be happier to have them on the podcast. So with that being said, we'll close out this episode. You can check out my website at globalrecon.net. Join the emailing list. There's a pop-up there. It'll pop up, and you can do it there. Check me out on Instagram. It's IG Recon. The second account is Black Ops Matter. I'm also on Mission underscore Critical. It's my friend Chantel Taylor's account, but I, I manage it as well. Check me out on Twitter at IG Recon and search LinkedIn at Global Recon. That way, um, and and leave us a review on iTunes. Download and subscribe on iTunes. Uh, check us out on SoundCloud. And the more this happens, the the more that we understand that you guys appreciate what we're doing, and then it'll help uh, us continue to put the effort and stay at the top of the iTunes uh, government and national categories. And um, you know, we we got some interesting episodes lined up. We got some really cool people who are going to come on here and share some of their stories and that and um, some of their experiences with you guys. So with that being said, now we'll close it out. Peace. In the long history of the world, only a few generations have been granted the role of defending freedom in its hour of maximum danger. I do not shrink from this responsibility. I welcome it. I do not believe that any of us would exchange places with any other people or any other generation. The energy, the faith, the devotion which we bring to this endeavor will light our country and all who serve it. And the glow from that fire can truly light the world. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask
ask what you can do for your country.